The Jodcast. On The Jodcast, everyone can hear you scream. With Stuart Harper, Indy Leclerc, Josie Peters, Mark Perver, and Joe Zunz. The Jodcast, October 2014, Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. In the studio with me today, I'm with uh, Mark and a new face, Josie. Hi, Josie. Hi there. So tell us a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself to our fellow listeners. Okay, uh, my name is Josie, I'm a new MSc student here at Manchester, and a uh, big fan of the Jodcast. It's very strange getting here and recognising everyone's voices. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's good fun. I, well, my research project at the moment, I'm doing a lot of reading, but it's going to be about uh, the relation of radio emission to other star formation traces in the Spiral Galaxy M83. Nice, interesting stuff. Cool, well, it's great to have you on the Jodcast, and it's great to have a, a new voice. So in the show this time, Stuart talks to Professor Annette Ferguson about nearby galaxies, and Dr Joe Zunz answers your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, Indy interviews Professor Sarah Bridal about weak gravitational lensing in this month's job bite. In this month's job bite, I'm with Professor Sarah Bridal. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Nice to have you on, finally. Uh, I've been chasing you around. Sorry, <laughs> right, it's been a while. while. You are currently a professor at Jodl Bank and you moved to Manchester from uh, from UCL how long was it ago? Almost, now? almost two years ago, yes. Almost two years I've ago. Gone quickly, yes. Um, your research interests centre primarily around, uh, well, you so say you're a cosmologist and you look primarily at gravitational lensing, or how much that tells us about the universe we live in, basically. One of your primary research interests is this thing called the Dark Energy Survey, and I know dark energy is something that fascinates a lot of our listeners uh, because we know so little about it. So uh, could you maybe give us uh, your sort of lowdown on what it is and, and why it's interesting? Okay, yeah. So I suppose, I mean, we don't know what it is, as you, exactly as you say, so um, there's not much I can say about it. But <laughs> um, So we do think it's there because when we look at the universe and how fast everything is moving away from us, then we find that actually things are accelerating away from us. Um, so they're getting faster and faster. The whole universe is expanding faster and faster all the time. And uh, so that's why the Nobel Prize in, in physics was given to this discovery of the accelerating universe uh, just a couple of years ago. So the biggest um, puzzle in cosmology today is why is the universe accelerating? And we have no idea. Um, so we just call it something. Yeah. Um, and we could call it pink elephants, but we call it dark energy. So this is something that we don't understand what it is and we want to find out more. We're trying to measure exactly how fast the universe is accelerating and we're trying to understand other properties about how clumpy the universe is and putting those two together can tell us more about this dark energy or whatever sure. it is. Yeah, whatever it is indeed. So it's kind of also intimately quite related to the idea of dark matter, which is mm-hmm. this, uh, this sort of stuff that we can see its gravitational impact in the universe, but we don't know exactly what it is either. How are the two related and and Dark matter is something, well, I'll let you go on about this, but dark matter is something that we can actually study more so than dark energy. So how do you use one to look at the other? Right, yeah, people often get sort of confused. Are they the same thing? Are they different things? So they are different things. So dark matter is, we could almost better call it transparent matter. So it's it's stuff that attracts other things by gravity, but we can't see it because it doesn't emit light, doesn't absorb light. And there's lots of theories uh, from particle physics which would predict the existence of dark matter. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it's not a mystery, but we don't actually know in any detail at all what it is. It pulls things towards it by gravity. So if you imagine all this dark matter is out there and it's pulling other bits of dark matter and it's pulling us towards it, it can't cause acceleration. Acceleration is the opposite kind of an effect. So we can't say dark matter can explain the acceleration. So that's why we've got to come up with another thing. 
and maybe it's a bit unfortunate that we called it something which sounds so similar to dark matter. So the fact that dark yeah. energy and dark matter begin with dark, well, the things we can't see, but that's about all they've got in common. Um, in my research, I'm using dark matter to learn about dark energy, which seems a bit bizarre because we're trying to find out about dark energy. I'm using one invisible thing to see another invisible <laughs> thing. But it turns out it's the, the method with the most potential to tell us about dark energy if we can make a map of the dark matter. What you're also saying is that it would be more useful if we called it uh, pink elephants and transparent matter. I think that would be a very, very good idea indeed, yep. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it on the Jodcast <laughs> Actually, moving on to your research. So um, you're using uh, observations of these things called gravitational lenses to actually figure out where the dark matter is. So, so what is a gravitational lens? So um, gravitational lensing is basically saying that as light travels from a distant galaxy, for example, towards us, then the light gets bent by the fact that dark matter is in the way. So the dark matter bends space-time and the light gets bent. It's actually, the maths is exactly the same as if you've got um, a piece of glass with varying thickness. So maybe you've got one of those you know, old windows in an old house which has got a sort of a, a blob in it and the light gets distorted around it. Or if you hold up a, a bottom of a wine glass in front of a light or a candle, you see these, these uh, smeared out shapes. So gravitational lensing, first discovered radio uh, Einstein ring here, of course, is basically an effect which happens very rarely that you get these very strong distortions that look almost like an arc or a ring. That happens very rarely. And what I work on is the fact that every single thing we see in the sky, every galaxy, for example, is gravitationally lensed a very, very small amount. So we can't see for any one galaxy, most galaxies, whether or not it's been gravitationally lensed. Mm -hmm. But if you look statistically, so you look at lots of galaxies all at once, you can see they tend to point in the same direction as each other. And we would expect that to happen if there was a gravitational lensing effect, because two galaxies which are nearby to each other would both travel through the same distorted, bent space-time. And so they both get stretched in the same direction. And so we'd see that, that kind of effect. If you look at pairs of galaxies taken from a million galaxies, then you can see this, uh, this, this effect that pairs of galaxies do actually point in the same direction. So the difficulty then lies in observing so many galaxies, I suppose. And I, so that's kind of the goal of what the uh, this dark energy survey is, Exactly. Yes. So the dark energy survey is making a, a precise measurements um, of 300 million galaxies over five years. So we're partway through taking the second year of data at the moment. Okay. And so with these 300 million galaxies, the bit that, that we're focusing on here um, is trying to measure the shapes of these galaxies extremely accurately. Because actually, when you take a picture of the sky with a telescope, with optics, you know, with the lenses and, and mirrors in, then that also distorts the galaxies. So you have to disentangle the effect of the optics from the effect of the gravitational lensing. And the effect of the optics is about a factor of 10 bigger than the gravitational lensing effect we're yeah. trying to measure. And in order to learn about dark energy, we have to measure not just to detect the gravitational lensing, but to measure that to 1% accuracy. So it becomes, you know, and that's like a factor of a thousand smaller than the effect of the telescope. So when you say sort of uh, measuring the shape, so essentially you, you have this kind of an idea of what the shape should be like, or how, how does it actually work to kind mm -hmm. of try and subtract? Uh, I'm guessing you're, most of these sources are just going to be small dots or they're round, really fuzzy. Round things, yeah. yeah, yeah, you can hardly really see, you know, that they're really there at all. So yeah, it's not like your picture of a beautiful galaxy with spiral arms and you're trying to measure the shape. You've just got, you know, a few pixels on a CCD on a camera uh, image, and so you're basically trying to trying to measure the shape of that galaxy, but subtract off. Um, the effect of the, the telescope. And, and the great thing is that stars are really, really small. So if we look at stars in the image and we assume they're extremely small, mm -hmm. then we can look at the shapes of those stars and then we can use those th that shape to tell us what the telescope is doing sure. and then use that information to subtract off that effect from the galaxies. Does that let you essentially 
figure out where the dark matter is? Right, so we can use this to make a map of the dark matter. So we can we can look at um, shapes of galaxies and then look to see are all the galaxies in a particular patch of sky pointing in one direction or another direction and then do that for lots of patches of the sky and we expect the galaxies to be, be um, stretched around blobs of dark matter. So we can basically take that map of the shapes of galaxies and convert it into a map of the dark matter. And and what does the dark matter distribution itself then tell you? Because right. I mean, this is kind of so you you build up to getting this final result, and then that presumably is what you want to get the info out. Yeah. So how do we, how does that tell us about dark energy? Maybe. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. 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 Why, why are we bothering? Yeah. yeah. So so basically, we're 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 making a, a three dimensional map of the dark matter. Is a really crucial thing. So we actually measure the distances to these galaxies in an approximate way as well. So we can actually look at different galaxies at different distances from us. Mm-hmm. And as as you know, in astronomy, when we look at far away galaxies, we're also looking back in time because yep. the light's taken so long to reach us. So we're actually looking at galaxies which emitted their light when the universe was half its present age. So we're able to make a map of the dark matter and see how clumpy the dark matter was all that time ago mm. when the universe was half its present age and compare that to how clumpy the universe is today. Basically, if you imagine you've got lots of dark energy causing the universe to accelerate in its expansion, and you've got gravity trying to pull clumps of of dark matter together and then imagine that the universe is accelerating faster and faster if there's more dark energy or or stretchier dark energy then the clumping rate is going to change so if we can see how clumpy the universe was when the universe is half its present age compare that to today that tells us about how much the universe has accelerated do you have any sort of results yet or are they consistent with what you think is going to happen or is it something completely surprised or can you not talk about it (laughs) well i am i i do there is a, a copious uh, length of publication policy which prevents me from saying anything too concrete at the moment <laughs> but we are in the process of analysing um, the, the data and we are hoping to put some results out um, very soon in the next few months sure. and, uh, and so yeah at the moment we're really you know trying to make sure we've got really good quality measurements of the shapes of the galaxies. Okay and um, I mean but naively you could expect that it would agree with this accelerating universe model where because we've, we already have these supernovae observations that tell us what well, they're getting further away faster so mm-hmm. you would expect a confirmation basically Yes, we've only got a small amount of data so far so as we get more data we'll be able to say more about dark energy. Mm-hmm. At the moment I think probably in the pipeline the kind of amount of data we've got at the moment is going to roughly tell us the clumpiness of the universe overall. That's uh-huh. the sort of first result we're going to get. And we've just actually finished analysing um, a, a competing, a previous earlier survey which is now finished and, and we've just published a paper there where we've compared how clumpy the universe is from looking at this uh, data from looking at the shapes of galaxies uh-huh. um, and compared that to what you get when you look at the cosmic microwave background, this light left over from the Big Bang. Yep. And we find that the clumpiness of those two different types of observation actually disagree. Okay. And so we're trying to understand why that is. And you may have heard um, some of the research that's been done here on, on suggesting that maybe neutrinos, um, the mass of the neutrino could reconcile these observations. Right. So that's the kind of first thing that we're likely to find out. And we want to see, do we repeat that result with the new data or, or not? Sure. And I mean, is this affected by, say, how much of the sky you look at? What is the dark energy survey? Is it looking at the whole sky? So the telescope is in Chile and we're looking at uh, 5,000 square degrees. So that's one okay. eighth of the whole sky. Uh-huh. Um, and at the moment, we're currently analysing 150 square degrees. So whatever 150 over 5,000 is, that's yep. the fraction that we're currently analysing at the moment. And at the moment, they're taking data. So we should be we, we should be about you know a fifth of the way through the main survey. We haven't we're not here in Manchester. We're not looking at that data at the moment. But sure. I think in a week's time, we're going to have that data oh, cool. um, because we're all going to be going to Brighton. Uh, the whole international collaboration is mm-hmm. is going to to Brighton, and we're having a big conference where we discuss how we're just getting on with uh, analysing the data. So we're busy preparing for that. 
Nice. Have you had a chance to go to Chile? Or? <laughs> um, not myself, um, but uh, but uh, several um, PhD students, postdocs, um, including some here, have, have been and uh, sure. you know sat there and uh, run the telescope for the, no. for the night. And uh, it's, nice. it's yeah, it's <laughs> they've been pretty happy about that. Yeah, that is the fun bit of astronomy getting to go to really sort of. <laughs> I did go to Hawaii a couple of times, that's, but that was a different project. Not too bad. <laughs> so I'm not sure to mention. <laughs> so that's the state of uh, of death, I guess, as as much as we can say now. And um, you're also involved in a sort of upcoming project, which is also in Chile, called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. Well, we have had Professor Ian Shipsy talk about this uh, on the Jodcast before, but um, maybe you could give your sort of point of view on the project. Yeah, so we're trying to um, get the UK into this big project called LSST that you just mentioned. So at the moment we've put in a we've written a proposal for what, what we think the UK should do and uh, we're preparing now to go and uh, present this proposal okay. um, to find out if we can get the money to join and so that would basically uh, get the whole of the UK into this project and we'd be able to analyze this data so that the the, the LSST is going to image um, half of the, the sky so the southern hemisphere obviously it can't do the northern hemisphere yeah. from Chile um, so it's going to image the whole southern sky the size of the telescope and the number of CCDs in the telescope the number of pixels in the telescope is so big that it's going to it's going to basically redo the whole of the dark energy survey in mm. you know nights oh, wow. and it's going to operate for 10 years okay. and it's going to scan the whole southern sky every three nights and it's going to repeat doing that and so, and it's going to take 15 second exposures, which is much shorter than the dark energy survey. Uh-huh. And it's going to do all these repeat observations. So it's, it not only is it going to build up a really, really deep map of the whole sky. Yeah. It's also going to be amazing for finding out about transient objects, so strange objects that that change in in brightness. And that's really cool in how that's going to link up with other observations, for example, with a square kilometre array that I'm sure your listeners are familiar with. Um, And uh, so to be able to find out about uh, exploding stars, gamma ray bursts, and there's there's so much that can be done on that side as well as just having really deep images, which is the bit that I work on myself. Brilliant. I mean, who's who's currently organising that? Is it the the US? So the project's led in the US um, and... And with with involvement from Chile mm-hmm. and some people in France, okay. and so um, yeah, and China's just joined, and there's some individual institutions in the UK are in, involved, but uh, not the whole of the UK at this point. One final question actually that came to mind when you were mentioning uh, stuff like the SKA. Um, so dark energy survey is obviously all in the optical, but can you combine those measurements with with similar radio measurements of weak lensing and then to get sort of a more complete data set? Does that help? We actually had a whole workshop on this Monday and Tuesday here, which was as, <laughs> yeah. as you know. Um, so yes, yeah, so we had uh, lots of discussions between the people working on radio and people working on optical uh-huh. and try to figure out how some of the techniques that have been developed in either area could be sure. combined and, yeah. and applied. And so it is, a, it is a really challenging problem to do this in the radio just because the positions of the radio telescopes mean that you get a particular blurring of the image which is very different from in the optical. Right. So it is a really, really challenging problem. But in principle, um, you should be able to learn different information from the optical and the radio, and that should help you to reduce the uncertainties. And in fact, one of the talks by Prina Patel, she showed us um, using existing data that you do learn very different things from the radio and the optical, which suggests that we're going to sort of um, double the amount of data, essentially, if we combine the two. Yeah. Oh, that's great. All right. Well, thanks a lot for talking to us, Sarah. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you very much for having me. It's great fun. Thank you. Thanks for that, Indy. And now we have Stuart Harper interviewing Professor Annette Ferguson about nearby galaxies. Hello. Today I am joined by Professor Annette Ferguson from the University of Edinburgh. And she's just finished doing a talk here at the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics. So welcome, Annette. Hello. (laughs) So to begin, I would like to just ask you generally, what is the sort of the structure of a galaxy? That you study, so your main area is right. So I'm interested in studying galaxies that are like our Milky Way, 
And that's a class of galaxy. It's one of the two kinds of galaxies we see in the universe, is spiral galaxies. And the structure of spiral galaxies, it's a little bit like a, there's a flattened component, a disk. It's a bit like a saucer plate. Um, and in the Milky Way, that's where our sun resides. It resides in the disk component of our galaxy, about halfway out between the center and the edge. And the other components of spiral galaxies are a central bulge. That's a kind of round component. In our galaxy, the bulge is full of old stars. And we're also surrounded by a stellar halo, which is also a sort of spheroidal component, but much more extended and diffuse than the bulge, and it envelops both the disk and the bulge. Okay, so is this the sort of structure that you'd expect from all spiral galaxies? It is, it is. We have pretty well-developed ideas now of how spiral galaxies come into existence, and indeed, we we have models that predict the existence of these different structural components in the spiral galaxy. We believe that they all formed, that the different components that you see in a spiral galaxy, we believe they formed in different ways, on different timescales. And one of the things that I'm working on is trying to test these theories with observations of stars and nearby galaxies, including our own. In your talk, you were talking a lot about accretion, also other processes, but accretion seemed to be the the primary theme. So what is accretion? What is an accretion on a galaxy? So one of the main ideas behind modern galaxy formation theories is that galaxies grow by devouring smaller galaxies. And this happens when small galaxies fall within the, the gravitational potential well, so the gravitational influence of a bigger galaxy. And at that point, they they basically get subsumed into the bigger galaxy and their stars get torn out by the tidal forces that they experience as they orbit around the bigger galaxy. And those stars then become part of the stellar halo of the big galaxy. So this idea is something we would really like to be able to test with observations. And there's a number of ways we can go about doing it. The easiest way is perhaps to look for giant streams of stars in the halos of galaxies that would signify the the remnants, the ghosts of galaxies that once were, that, that have now been devoured. So were there originally lots of these dwarf galaxies, smaller galaxies around larger galaxies? That's, or was it just lots of little galaxies? That's a good question. So initially, uh, we believe that the first galaxies that formed in the universe at high redshift were small galaxies. And then these small galaxies merged together and grew into significantly larger systems over time. And we believe that's probably how our Milky Way arose. It started off quite small and it's it's grown bigger over time. Current models predict that our galaxy should have several thousands of small galaxies, either today or in once originally had maybe several thousands of small galaxies orbiting around it. So there should be plenty of signatures of these accretion and tidal disruption processes if we can find them in the halo. So most of these aren't around anymore? Or were you saying that there are thousands still currently that we maybe can't see? Or Yeah, this is a, a, a very big puzzle that a lot of astronomers are working on right now. The prediction is that there should be several thousands of them even right now. And as current knowledge of the Milky Way, we know that there are maybe about 20. So there's a gross discrepancy between what theory tells us there should be and what we can actually see. There are various 
um, ideas being proposed to explain this discrepancy. Um, some of them may have been devoured. Some of them may be completely dark. Um, they may be galaxies that only have dark matter and they don't actually have any stars associated with them. That would require some fairly special conditions, but it can't be excluded right now by observations. But these galaxies, these small galaxies, they, um, they may only contain a few stars, for example, yeah. so that's why we can't see them. They might be very low luminosity or very faint, and so they're very hard to find when they're so faint. But one way that we might hope to find them is through their, their dark matter. Um, so galaxies are composed both of stars and gas, and they also have dark matter halos. And so for the systems that maybe lack many stars, they'll at least have dark matter, so we can possibly look for their influence in that way. So that would be, for example, looking for streams of stars that appear to be going to, to nowhere. The gravitational effects, I suppose. Yeah, it would be mostly looking for gravitational effects due to these dark matter halos. So we would be looking for signatures that there was some satellite galaxy that was causing a gravitational influence on a nearby object, but that we couldn't actually see any stars there. So these would be invisible galaxies in starlight, but if we had dark matter glasses on, we might see them. Well, that could take some time. <laughs> what does accretion tell us about a galaxy's history? Well, if the theory is right, that accretion has been an important process in galaxies growing, then what we would like to know is, is how many stars in our galaxy were accreted. So how many of them formed in other galaxies and were brought into our galaxy? Is that most of the stars? Is it only a tiny fraction of the stars? We'd like to know what kind of stars come into our galaxy through accretion. Is it the oldest stars? Is it the most metal deficient stars? So we would like to understand how this process of accretion has actually helped to build up the, the stellar component of our galaxy over time, we would like to know whether accretion has been important in the formation of the, the diffuse stellar halo that surrounds the Milky Way, or whether it's been important in the formation of the central bulge, or even in the disk. So at the moment, we don't have good constraints on how important accretion has been for e each of these different stellar components. So would you say we don't really know that well which stars are native to the Milky Way, for example? Yeah, there's a lot of work going into trying to figure that out. The Gaia satellite that was launched uh, late last year, it's um, surveying the sky, it's measuring very detailed positions and distances for about a billion stars in the Milky Way. And we hope that by analysing the data that Gaia is going to provide, we will be able to start to put limits on um, the number of stars that have come into our galaxy in, in stellar streams or through the accretion process and distinguish them from the ones that were formed natively in our galaxy. Also in your talk, you mentioned a few other processes. So there was, uh, there was also feedback. Is that something that you work on? I don't actually work on feedback myself. Many mm -hmm. people do. Yep. It's a key process in, in astrophysics, and we believe it's really important for regulating the physics of galaxy formation. The idea behind feedback is that when stars form, especially massive stars, so stars maybe at least 10 times as massive as the sun, when they form and they, they start shining through uh, fusing uh, hydrogen in their cores, um, they pump out lots of high-energy photons, and those photons influence the surrounding gas. 
So they excite the gas, they heat it, they send shock waves through the gas, and then at the end of their lives they explode as supernovae, which also um, releases huge amounts of energy into the surrounding gas. When you perturb the gas that surrounds stars, you can either encourage it to form more stars or you can inhibit it from forming more stars. So understanding how the feedback process works and what the net effect is on the gas, which is the material from which subsequent generations of stars will form, is is really key. So you're looking for evidence for both feedback and accretion in what you said was 1800 galaxies. Is that correct? One of the studies we've conducted is to look at a sample of 1800 galaxies, and we've been examining them to see whether we see stellar streams in this sample and how frequently we see that. And stellar streams are a signature of this accretion process. Stellar streams indicate that some dwarf galaxy has been devoured by the the massive galaxy, um, the massive host galaxy. So we've been looking to see if we can quantify how often that process happens. You also showed a picture of M31, which is the Andromeda galaxy. And that was a uh pretty spectacular the the streams you could see going between so m33 which is another nearby galaxy so you had a, a large role in working on that, was that yeah we've conducted it's actually taken us about a decade to do a survey of the andromeda galaxy so also known as m31 and the triangulum galaxy which is m33 on the sky those galaxies are separated by about 15 times the size of the full moon. Um, we've been using a telescope in Hawaii to map out this complete area and analyze the uh, stellar distribution in between the two galaxies. It's required about 400 hours of observing time over about five years, so it's been a ginormous effort. And there's a team of about 10 of us have been working on this, and we're scattered all over the world. It's led by a Canadian scientist. And so the, the result, as you say, is we've found evidence for a lot of faint stellar stream material in between the two galaxies, which suggests there's been quite a lot of accretions in the past. And in fact, we think the two galaxies, Triangulum and Andromeda, have interacted with each other um, about three billion years ago as well. So the amount of detail that you can see M31 image is vastly superior to what you could see in the 1800 individual galaxies. For you to learn what you want to learn about these the formation and history of these galaxies, are you going to need 400 hours on every single one of these other galaxies or more because they're further away? That's what we would love. Um, <laughs> that would be ideal. Unfortunately, that doesn't seem realistic. Um, it's It's been such a, a large effort to, to get the telescope time to map out the region around the Andromeda galaxy. It's it's impossible to believe we would get that much time to map out 1,800 galaxies. But there are a number of new telescopes and new facilities that are coming in the not-too-distant future that we think could help to make good progress here. One of them is the Euclid satellite. It's an ESA satellite that will be launched um, in 2018, 2019. And it's a, it's a space telescope and it will survey a lot of the sky and the data from Euclid will allow us to look in detail at the, the faint structure 
of a good a good number of nearby galaxies. Slightly further on the horizon is the LSST, which is a, a large 8-metre telescope that the UK are currently bidding to become a member of, and that will survey the sky many, many times over the course of its 10-year duration. What sort of telescope is you play? Is it, is it optical? Is it? It's a telescope that has both an optical and a near-infrared capability. What's the benefits of Euclid? Is it just because it's serving such a... Euclid is actually, it's been designed for another scientific purpose. It's been designed to study dark energy and the accelerating universe. But there are lots of other science that um, astronomers are going to be able to do with the data that Euclid provides. One of those other science areas that Euclid will be particularly good for is both studying the, the stars in our Milky Way galaxy's halo, as well as stars in the, the halos of other nearby galaxies. Okay, so that's the, that's the future, essentially, of your work? There's a, yeah, so we have a, a number of really exciting things. Um, Gaia, as I mentioned before, is, is going to deliver fantastic data on the Milky Way. Euclid and LSST will deliver uh, fantastic data on quite a number of other nearby galaxies, allow us to survey them, to, to look at them at extremely faint surface brightness limits and look for signatures of these um, tidal disruption events. Um, okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> okay, bye. Thanks for that, Stuart. And now we get to the part of the show where we fit in all the stuff we couldn't fit in anywhere else. It's the odds and ends. Uh, so, actually, let's start with Josie. What have you got for us? Uh, My odd and end is about uh, the New Horizons Pluto mission. Uh, basically, after they go and visit Pluto, they want to go and look at lots of different Kuiper belt objects. So, they were looking at with ground-based telescopes before, and they were finding lots of different objects that they could look at, but unfortunately, they were all sort of unattainable because they wouldn't have had enough fuel supply to be able to reach them. Uh, but they were luckily dedicated... Um, some time with the Hubble Space Telescope, and they found three different Kuiper Belt objects that should be within reach. They're all about sort of ten times larger than normal comets, but about one to two percent the size of Pluto. Uh, two of them are quite well reasonable size of thirty-four miles in diameter, and one of them is about fifteen. But like the reason that this would be really interesting is because basically no one's really looked at any of them up close before, and they're thought to be pristine sort of objects that just sort of haven't been heated or anything by the sun, so would be quite a good time capsule for the beginning of like the, the solar system. Mm, okay. Um Yeah, so they're just really, really big rocks that no one's ever seen before. So, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. That's, 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 um, <laughs> yeah, that is the kind of for you. Um, it's interesting as well that Hubble has been able to find these objects presumably since it was first launched, but they just didn't really look for them. And now there's a lot more interest in the Kuiper belt since New Horizons. Yeah, I think it said that they had to show some sort of proof that there would be something interesting there to to go and see, and that's why they got allocated the the telescope time. So uh, I know the New Horizons thing has been around for a while, but so what is it exactly? It's just a uh, um, spacecraft that's kind of gently heading out of the solar system and uh, uh, photographing stuff along the way, isn't it? Yeah, I think it headed by Jupiter first, and then basically it's got seven different um, instruments on it. So they've got different things for sort of probing the atmospheric uh, composition and uh, for taking really detailed images of the surface. So one of the things it's called LORI, it's like long range reconnaissance imager. Uh, it'll be able to take images 
the sort of the resolution of different football fields all over Pluto, mm-hmm. and uh, they'll be able to show different features that range sort of about 100 meters across. But yeah, they've got all these seven different instruments, and so after they've done all of that sort of probing on Pluto, then they're also going to be doing the, the exact same stuff to all the Kuiper Belt objects as well. Yeah, it's really cool because I was looking at this the other day and, and our best images of Pluto are like a few hundreds of pixels wide from the Hubble Space Telescope. And it doesn't really look like anything at all. And it's surprising that we don't actually have any any good images of Pluto. Yeah. The colours are funny as well. I yeah, think. they're weird. They're <laughs> sort of brownish yeah. yellow or something. What colour is really going to look like? I kind of yeah. imagine Pluto as being a bit blue, but I don't know why that is. Well, because it's, it's icy, isn't yeah. it? So. Well, it's rocky, but I don't know where... How well, much... I guess that's what's going to be sold by New yeah. Horizons, isn't it? Like how much ice, how much rock. Yeah. What colour is bleeding? Yeah, all yeah. the composition. And then they're going to be looking at um, Sharon as well, the, mm-hmm. the... moon. We yeah. have featured it before on the Jogcast, but probably not for a few years because it launched in the same year that the Jogcast launched. <laughs> so um, there was certainly something in the first year about Pluto being demoted as a planet, which yeah. happened not long after the launch, I think. And I think as we get towards next July, whenever it arrives... There's going to be more and more about Pluto and how perhaps some people think it should be reinstated. Yeah, people are very passionate about Pluto. (laughs) (laughs) Controversy. On the other hand, I'd rather have a mission to the first of the Kuiper Belt objects than the last of the planets. Well, we don't know if it is the last of the planets or the first. It's a dwarf planet. Yeah. So it's still a planet. Well, no, dwarf planets (laughs) aren't planets. This is the key semantics of the argument. That's the problem. uh, Yeah. Well... Anyway, it's yeah. an interesting place to go. Definitely. Actually, just uh, in terms of landing, well, approaching other um, solar system objects, uh, just as an aside, because we love talking about Rosetta on the Jodcast, uh, they've fixed the date, I think, for the lander. It's the 12th of November. So uh, get your live streams ready for the uh, for the amazing landing of um, Philae onto the Rosetta, onto the Comet 67P. So for my odd and end, I'm staying within the solar system uh, with some news from the uh, 27th Planetary Congress of the Association of Space Explorers, which, for starters, is something I didn't know existed and which I'd really like to be part of. (laughs) And this happened in Beijing uh, last month. And it was essentially an invitation for for people in the space industry from the Chinese government to to, to kind of look at the Chinese space program and... and, and, um, present also their innovations and so there's there's a lot of collaboration going on and china has some very ambitious plans uh for for their space program uh including building up towards their own manned uh space station by 2022 so that's that's not too far in the distant future and and they have said that it it would be definitely a platform for international participation and cooperation so we, of course, we've uh, talked about the Chinese lunar rover program, the Chang'e rockets that have been sending up these uh, lunar rovers. And so it, it's quite um, interesting because uh, the Chinese space program is the names that they use. So Chang'e is, is based on a myth of a beautiful young woman who had a jade rabbit called Yutu and who went to the moon. And so they basically named their rocket and their rover after after this young woman and, and her jade rabbit. And it's it's... A bit of a parallel to the American space program where they named the rockets sort of Gemini and Apollo, um, which were based on, on mythical Greek figures, uh, to do with, well, so Apollo was the sun god, for example. China has also a series of missions, uh, manned missions called Shenzhou, and those include, so the first crewed flight, the first spacewalk, and first dockings, uh, to a space lab. And so people attending this conference have basically said that the atmosphere in China at the moment is, is quite similar to, to what it was like in the States in, in the sort of, in the 60s when, when they were first trying to put people on the moon and put people up into space. 
So, of course, when, anytime you talk about space, there is also uh, related politics to that. And, uh, um, I mean, obviously, the first space race happened during the Cold War, and there was a lot of intense U.S.-Soviet rivalry. And, and even though space nowadays is done a lot more in a spirit of, like, international cooperation, so China does want to, to cooperate with other nations in this, but many people are expecting that the U.S. really won't be invited to the party on board the, uh, on board the Chinese space station and, and other Chinese programs. But definitely a nation to watch then in terms of space exploration and manned spaceflight. And Mark, what do you have uh, for us this, this month? Uh, I've got space weather. The Met Office, that's the meteorological office, which is the official sort of UK weather forecasting service, has opened a special space weather centre. Um, you might not think space has any weather, but what they're talking about is the sun, basically, and what the sun does. So the sun can give out... Uh, flares it can these can be seen but they also send charged particles off in any old direction really some of which can come to earth and it's possible for uh, these particles to arrive at the earth and actually disrupt electrical equipment so they can induce currents in uh, power grids and, and things like that so it's possible to forecast these events with a certain amount of certainty i mean we all know that weather forecasts are not always absolutely perfect and it's already been done by the met office it's done by uh, other groups in other countries uh, but by making this center they're hoping to sort of bring it all together and have a proper early warning system particularly for the national grid in the uk which um, provides all the electricity supplies and they're working with the national grid so that for example if there's a, a flare forecast to arrive at the earth they can reconfigure the grid so that certain transformers could be protected. If um, there's going to be a chance of, say, a big power outage, uh, because it has happened, although it's not, these aren't very common things. In Canada, I think possibly in the late 80s, there was um, a big uh, power cut due to a solar storm. And what with the amount of electronic equipment we have now, it could it could happen again. So, yeah, we're now apparently slightly better at forecasting the space weather. Yeah, no, that's really good because I guess a, a big solar flare is, is a sizable threat uh, to to also. I mean, we're so dependent on electricity and electronic devices. Um, I think there was a last, there was a huge one in sort of the late 19th century that knocked out all sorts of telegra- telegraphic equipment and, and that sort of thing. But it would be, it would cost a lot more nowadays just in terms of the economy, like how much damage it would do, so... Yes, in 1859, there was a thing called the Carrington Flare, which was named after an astronomer, Richard Carrington, and apparently um, telegraph stations, in some cases, they were able to communicate with each other without having the power switched on because of the induced currents, and there were a few fires caused as well, apparently, um, by electrical equipment blowing. So even if that's a once in a hundred years sort of thing, you're right, there's a lot more riding on it now. Mm. If it was strong enough as well, would it disrupt like all the GPS satellites? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think satellites can be threatened as well, and the accuracy of GPS can be affected when the sun gets to its peak of activity, I think. Although it's been recently at the peak without any huge problems. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you're relying on GPS to find your way around on Earth and it knocks out some satellites, you could be lost. Yeah. I'd have a terrible time. I'm very reliant on maps on my phone. (laughs) There is even an estimate for how much economic damage could be caused 
which, I mean, it must be a very rough estimate, but it is measured in trillions of dollars. So a trillion is a million million. Yeah, wow. That's a lot of money. Yeah, because I, I guess you'd get a lot of disruption sort of on the stock exchange and all that kind of stuff as well. Mm. You'd lose a lot of money that way. You would. I guess it depends where the power could happen. Certainly if, if the a stock ex- major stock exchange goes down, it's pretty serious. People can't trade and so on. Yeah, end up losing quite a lot of money. It's rated as comparable to threats such as a flu epidemic and another volcano erupting in Iceland. Wow. So they're taking it seriously, though. Yeah. Like, yeah. Hopefully they no one would die. Well, no. I, guess, I don't know. I guess hospitals have backup generators and stuff. Yeah, oh, that's true. Really yeah, it depends how long the power cut lasts for. And now to an astronomer who has more flair than the average star. It's Joe Zunz answering your astronomical questions. Our first question comes from Dr. Mark Leach, who says, Hi, I'm a chemist based in Manchester and have been wondering about the density of the universe at the epoch of recombination, about 380,000 years after the Big Bang. Are there any present-day analogies of this temperature and pressure? Thanks, and keep up the good work, Mark. So the recombination era is a kind of process, or a long period rather than just one, so the temperature varies a little bit throughout that period. Um, But it's about 3,000 or 4,000 Kelvin, uh, so 3,000 or 4,000 centigrade approximately. Um, So that's a kind of easily accessible temperature to experiments today with lots of things that we can get that kind of temperature with. What's very different about the universe at the era of recombination is the density of the universe. So that's actually incredibly low by the standards of the Earth in everyday experiments. Um, So even though it's huge compared to the density of the universe today, it's it's about a million times, sorry, a billion times bigger, it's still tiny compared to what we normally experience. So the density of the universe at recombination is about 10 to the minus 18 kilograms per cubic metre. So that's a millionth of a millionth of a millionth of a kilogram per kilometer, so absolutely tiny. So that's why there's not really any um, easily accessible density that we can sort of probe or experiment with in the modern universe, because that's very close to what we would call a vacuum. What's kind of similar in temperature, oddly enough, is the temperature of the solar photosphere, so the outermost part of the sun, um, has a temperature that's sort of fairly close to the temperature of the recombination. And that's not entirely a coincidence because they're both related to the excitation energy of uh, electrons and protons. So that's um, not entirely a coincidence. And there's a very interesting paper by Crow, Moss and Scott on April Fool's Day 2008, which the community sort of wondered if it was an April Fool's Day joke because it was uh, about how the sun was very similar to the universe. But it's a very serious piece of work, actually. So we know that these kind of temperatures and densities are what's around based on how we know the universe has expanded since recombination. So recombination happened at what we call redshift about a thousand, which means the universe was 1,000 cubed times its current uh, three-dimensional size. So 1,000 times smaller in linear scale, so 1,000 cubed times smaller in volume since, uh, you know, compared to the modern day. And that means we know that the density of matter has uh, gone up by a factor of a thousand cubed. But with temperature, it's a little bit more complicated because photons behave a bit differently when you kind of scale space because the photons get stretched themselves as well as the kind of number of them being stretched. It's a little bit more complicated with the temperature, but the density is a really simple calculation from the modern day. So John Brooks writes in to ask, if Stephen Hawking is correct and black holes can evaporate, wouldn't that imply that something, in his meaning radiation, can escape from, from a black hole? And if so, why can't we see black holes emitting this radiation? So on one level, this is above my pay grade because it cuts to the heart of the difference between a classical object and a quantum object. So black hole radiation is the place where all the classical ideas we have, so the relativity and the kind of smooth ideas of space-time, you know, butt up against the world of the quantum um, phenomena in which things are much more complicated and sort of much harder to reason about um, in the way we can do in a familiar way. Probably only Stephen Hawking knows the exact answer to that question. Um, 
But the, the general picture is, um, and, and the easy answer, I suppose, is that actually the, photo, the, uh, the, the stuff we see escaping from black holes isn't actually escaping from inside the black holes. It's escaping from very near the surface of a black hole, so not quite inside. So in that sense, that's kind of a cheat answer to get out of it. But um, that, that is true, because the, the way that this emission happens is that virtual particles appear in pairs, as they do throughout the universe. They're sort of spitting out of the energy of empty space, and one of the particles goes into the black hole and one comes out. Um, so that's that's the um, the kind of classical picture of what's going on. The real quantum picture is much more complicated, and it's not <laughs> quite my area of expertise, so I, I shouldn't, um, you know, go into it too deeply. But the question of can we see the emission um, is an interesting one. In, there's no theoretical reason why we can't see an emission like that. We expect the uh, radiation coming from a black hole to be roughly thermal, so that means, you know, having the same kind of uh, emission profile as just a warm object. Unfortunately, the expected levels that you get from a kind of reasonably sized black hole are just much too low to be able to see it compared to all the other stuff we can see in space. So if you were close enough to this, you should in theory be able to detect this kind of thing. But in practice, because it's so dim compared to the other sources of light, we just can't see it. The typical wavelength is supposed to be infrared. Um, it's peaking in the infrared region the spectrum just to do with the temperature that you expect a kind of classical sized black hole to be. You know, if you were close enough and you had the right kind of infrared detector, just like the kind we could get here on Earth, you could in theory see them. Excellent. Well, maybe one day in the future we'll actually be able to see the surface of a black hole. I think that's a long way off. <laughs> and finally, we've got um, another question from John Brooks, uh, who asks, if light or a photon has no mass, then how can it be affected by a gravitational field? And he's thinking namely of gravitational lensing or black holes. So there's two ways to answer this question. One classical that Isaac Newton would have approved of, and one relativistic that Einstein would have found really exciting. So the classical answer, which is a very reasonable answer, is that that photons uh, obey the same Galilean principle that everything else does. So the Galilean principle is just that things of different weight or different mass drop at the same speed. So if it's the, the classic idea is holding two different sized balls out of the Leyland Tower of Pisa and dropping them, seeing if they uh, fall at the same speed, and, and they do. So if two blocks of a you know, reasonable size drop at the same speed, then that's true no matter how small you make one of the, the, the weights. So you know, if a thing, one kilogram drops the same speed as a gram, or a milligram, or a microgram, or a nanogram. So no matter how small you go, those two things still drop at the same speed. So the idea is that you just take the kind of limit of that process, which is mass of zero. And so, you know, if something of a millionth of a millionth of a gram drops at the same speed as a much heavier object, then why not something of mass zero? That's the, that's the kind of classical picture that explains that idea. The relativistic picture is much more interesting and much more exciting. The idea there is that it's not that the gravitational field that the Earth or other things are producing, or, or the black holes, or the gravitational lens, the gravitational field that those things are producing is not uh, directly affecting objects like photons or like ordinary matter. What it's doing is bending and curving the space-time that those things are moving through. So the photon and the object see the same kind of space-time as each other, and it's all caused by the, the, the mass of the gravitationally lensing object. So the idea is that they're not looking at the object itself, they're looking at the underlying gravitational distortion to the universe, and that's the same no matter what kind of object you are. What is different between photons and um, massive objects in relativity is how fast they go, which is obviously very reasonable. Ordinary objects go at a very slow speed compared to the speed of light. The idea is that um, because light is going so fast, it can see different bits of that curvature, namely the curvature of time as well as the curvature of space, that ordinary moving objects just can't see. So actually, when you look at real objects, a slow-moving object bends about half as much by gravity as a photon does. And we've actually, interestingly, although that's been known for a very, very long time, we've only recently been able to detect it in the weak lensing regime, although it was Eddington um, in 1921 who showed it was true for the 
uh, strong lensing regime around the sun. So that was the very first proof of relativity was that difference between the bending of light and the bending of ordinary matter. Brilliant. Great explanation. Thanks, cool. Joe. Thanks. And if you'd like Joe to answer one of your questions, send them in at www.jodcast.net forward slash contact. Thanks for that, Joe. Now we move on to the feedback. And something that makes us always very happy here at the Jodcast is we do have post this time. Um, so first off, we got a very lovely uh, card with a classic uh, MC Escher print on it, all the way from New Zealand. So it was quite a shock to see the stamp that something came from that far away. So I'll just read it out, and it says, Dear Jodcast team, I love the show. Thank you for being so fantastic. Please say hello to Tony Gibson, who is currently studying the stars in France. Jodon, love from Irihapit, New Zealand. So thanks a lot, Irihapit, and we will say uh, hi to Tony Gibson. Hi, Tony. Um, and hope that he is enjoying the night sky in France. The picture has one of those towers that Escher used to draw with people walking up and up and up and coming back to the same place. Yeah. And I wondered if it symbolised research. It, it might well do. <laughs> I think it might well do. Although I don't know about research, maybe like every few years the staircase kind of does get up, go up a little bit, even though you think you're walking around in circles. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, so thanks a lot for that card. Okay, and we also have a postcard all the way from New York. Uh, it's a picture of the New York skyline, and there's also a shuttle right at the top of the picture. And it says, Greetings to all at the Jodcast from the Space Shuttle Enterprise, uh, now based here in New York on the deck of a World War II aircraft carrier, the Intrepid. Love the Jodcast, Johan Andrews. Yeah. Such a great picture. It's, it's, it's really, yeah. It's Enterprise being ferried by plane. Yeah, yeah, so it's New York. piggybacking on the plane so in the days of the space shuttle. It was a pretty impressive machine, that. I um, think I might have seen that plane as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. It's like the biggest in the world. <laughs> wow. And it was at Manchester Airport once yeah. last year or this year. Nice. <laughs> the NASA plane. Didn't have a shuttle on it. That's yeah, a shame. Understandable. <laughs> <laughs> on email, thank you very much for all the Ask an Astronomer questions, which we will attempt to get answered as soon as we can. Uh, on Twitter... After last episode's discussion of one's favourite wavelength, um, the Jodrell Bank Twitter account asked their followers uh, what their favourite was, and they seemed to agree with me, at least Jodrell Bank agreed with me, that the 21 centimetres was the best wavelength, because uh, that's where you pick up cold hydrogen. And Robert Minchin, who works in Arecibo, agreed. Alan Duffy, who we interviewed recently, uh announced on Twitter that his moment had arrived after being featured on the Jodcast. And thank you also for all the follows, retweets, and follow Fridays, and on Facebook for all the likes. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. All that's left to say is thanks to Professor Annette Ferguson and Professor Sarah Bridal for the interviews. The editors were Indy Leclerc, Sally Cooper, Ian Harrison and Christina Illier. Until next time... Jordan. Jordan.